0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Grant's Interest Rate Observer Radio. We are delighted today to have with us Dean Kurnut, who is the founder and CEO of Macro Risk Advisors. Dean knows all about risk, and uh, he knows if anyone in the world actually cares about it, and we'll hear from Dean presently. Uh, but first, ladies and gentlemen, uh, uh, a word uh, from our sponsor. That's me, actually. Uh, now, they Never was a bad time to subscribe to grants, which is the contrary-minded, value-seeking, independent, twice-monthly Journal of Finance. But now is, uh, I think, an essential time. Interest rates are near their lows. And, and you know, uh, ultra-low interest rates resemble what the young people call beer goggles. Uh, they distort perception, make plain things appear irresistibly beautiful. Grant's mission is to restore critical judgment, impart perspective, and and to serve up original, deeply researched investment ideas. Every two weeks for well-nigh 34 years, Grant's interest rate observer, thinking required. Trademark. So Dean, um, welcome. Dean is the, um, as I mentioned, the founder and CEO of Macro Risk Advisors, a magna cum laude alumnus of St. John's University right here in New York. Dean excelled. In analytical finance at the University of Chicago, where he earned an MBA and copped the Citibank, if you please, the Citibank Award for Best Performance in Finance, the best thing to happen to the Citibank brand in about, oh, 100 years. Or so. And after a spell, a successful spell, the Bank of America, uh, Dean set off on his own in uh, 2008. Most intrepid of you, Dean. Um, so, Dean, you help. Uh, Oh, I I, I mentioned this. Uh, uh, With me today, besides Dean, is uh, Eric Whitehead, who's at the controls. Welcome, Eric. Um, And the great Evan Lorenz, the deputy editor of grants and the fount of so many good ideas here. And uh, just a couple of bad ones, really, but mostly of great ideas from Evan Lorenz. So, Dean, please tell us if anyone cares at all about risk.
1: Right. Well, it's uh, it's an incredibly important question and one that everybody is talking a lot about. And uh, I would say that uh, a lot of folks care about it. Um, I think one of the challenges that uh, we have in the investment industry is that we, uh, as portfolio managers, folks that are uh, charged with generating return, um, as you've said, this we've got this very, very low interest rate environment. Return is hard to come by. And because it's hard to come by, the budgets that uh, you typically would uh, need in order to uh, pay for more defensive trades like hedges are thin as well uh, so there's certainly a lot of uh, nervousness amongst investors but on a day-to-day basis the fluctuations in the S&P are so limited uh, that uh, you'd look at that and you'd say well no one does care about risk uh, and i think this is one big part of the of the puzzle and the challenge that people face right now
0: uh, isn't the nature of markets that uh, that the setup, as they say on Wall Street, the setup is always kind of perverse? That um, uh, when it's most imperative, one might posit most imperative to hedge, it is least, uh, at least uh, arithmetically possible because because the returns are so low, because things are so serene, because it seems as if there's nothing to hedge against except, proverbially. Um, uh, periods of calm not only precede periods of distress and uh, volatility, but also to a degree cause them. Um, so I, for what you say, I gather that it's cheap to hedge if anyone had the extra three or four pennies on the dollar to do it. Uh, how cheap are hedges and what hedges What might one find an,
1: an offer? Right. So, so to your first point, I think there there is this kind of paradox of risk, which is at the very time from a hedging standpoint where you should be doing the opposite of hedging, meaning you should be uh, selling puts, uh, you uh, are forced to buy them, uh, sometimes in a hurry and sometimes at incredibly elevated prices. If we go back, you mentioned founding Macro Risk Advisors in in 2008, uh, the VIX reached 80 in, in 2008. What drives the VIX to 80 is the day-to-day fluctuations in the S&P, which are now um, hard to discern at all, were monumentally high. Uh, the realized volatility for a one-month period during those worst days in, I want to say October or November of 2008, was about 80%. And so to give you a, a sense, there's a little rule of thumb that you can do, which is to uh, to take uh, the, the realized volatility and bring it back to the daily fluctuations that are required to get there. 80 vol is about 5% a day, up or down. Those are gigantic movements to sustain over a one month period. We had several days where it was a 9% move in the S&P, even the the modest days were two and 3%. And so people are forced to buy hedges and pay up uh, because the world has changed very quickly. And the demand for the hedges is what forces the price of it up, right? And so at some point you wind up paying sky high prices for, uh, for portfolio protection, for protection, for puts. And it turns out that taking the other side of that trade, while risky, can be substantially profitable, and the paradox is that no one—the reason it gets so high is because no one's in a position to take the other side of it, and it is really the exact opposite situation right now, which is the competition to sell insurance is so high, uh, everybody's doing it, so to speak, and uh, that's what's pushing the the price low. So these hedges in cost are incredibly cheap. Um, again, just to put it in um, in volatil- volatility in VIX terms. We had a, a 9.7, I think, print in the in the VIX. Now, what's again, what's very interesting is that, um, that and that that feeds directly into the cost of a one month option. That's what that is. That's a measure of the one month implied volatility, which is the primary driver of the option price. Um, and so, by the metric of the implied volatility in its own percentile, uh, we haven't seen levels like this in in you know ten years. Um, and you know, you can go all the way back to the early 90s to see levels uh, of a VIX like this. Um, so that makes volatility nominally very low. You can't necessarily classify it as cheap uh, because, and this is, goes back to the realized volatility, the realized volatility in the S&P over the most recent 10-day period, two weeks, is 3%. So on that measure, a 9.5 VIX is still too high.
0: Right, but but these are measured against one to the other at a time of of apparent tranquility, but we know in the nature of human affairs, not to mention the fellow who's occupying the White House, that uh, peace and quiet are not destined to last forever, right? So, they couldn't we say these thing these options are cheap based upon a reasonable appraisal of future events?
1: Absolutely. Uh, now, w-
0: now well, apart from apart from the VIX, let's 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 talk about. I mean, the VIX is, 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 to me at least, is almost this metaphysical thing. It's motion. It's whatever happened to stocks and bonds. Now, give us a sense in the real world of what you would pay to hedge a portfolio using conventional. Um, I don't know. You tell us. You're the authority. Sure.
1: Uh, there's a number of different things you can look at, and. Um, You know you go back to the black and Scholes model right they come up with this theoretical construct to price options and there's a bunch of assumptions in there Um, but one of them is that volatility is constant over time we just talked about an 80 vix and an 80 realized and then a three realized so it's clearly that volatility ebbs and flows through different cycles and different market conditions Um, but they assume it's just constant they they also assume that volatility by strike is all the same and so in s p uh, in equity markets, the uh, volatility that's attached or the volatility used <clears throat> to price an out-of-the-money option tends to be higher than the at-the-money option. And that's just a recognition of the asymmetry of returns that markets can fall a lot faster than they rise. To give you you know, some sense of pricing, uh, one of the trades I was looking at this morning uh, was uh, a 5% out-of-the-money put on the NDX, the NASDAQ 100. Um, and so that goes out to December of this year and the cost of that is 2.75%. Okay? Of, of, the, of, of the, of the, of, the, you put up, right? of the, the notional, yeah. Uh, so yeah, market has to fall seven and a half percent, uh, just to, just to break even. Um, right. And so it, you know, with, with the, um, that's low. That's a low number for NASDAQ volatility. Um, again, as the VIX has come down, that's a very short term measure. Um, you've got different VIXs. You've got a three month VIX, you've got six month, and you, know, you can go all the way out. And then of course you have different underlyings like the NASDAQ, and then you have the VIX equivalent for all these other asset classes, um, which have also uh, truly sold off remar- in remarkable fashion the last uh, you know several months. So you've got this kind of meltdown Uh, in volatility across different asset classes right now. And it's all a function of the tranquility, as you use the term, of the day-to-day lack of movements in in the markets make it really difficult for folks to own options.
0: How did the avatar of tail risk, by which we around here at Grants, mean Donald Trump, how did he crush the VIX personally?
1: It's so interesting what happened with Trump when, when he won. So uh, I certainly uh, failed to really understand, um, as did the market. Remember, the the night of the election, over at 9 o'clock or so, before he gave his expect, uh, acceptance speech, the uh, S&P was down 100 handles. That's a big move, 5-ish five, percent. So clearly, that sort of risk event that folks thought was occurring um, would occur as a function of Trump as we started to see the Electoral College map come into play. Um, uh, something flipped, right? Where it was, oh, there's a tax cuts and there's pro growth and there's this infrastructure spending. He's going to be a champion of deregulation. And so it took a day uh, or, or two, but then the market actually started to get its footing. What was, you talk a lot about interest rates. What was so interesting, again, in the first two months, let's say post the election was the disparate impact that the Trump win and this reflation uh, campaign had on different segments of the S&P. So one of the things that can crush volatility at the index level is correlation. Lower correlation means lower volatility. And the in the ensuing two to three months post the election, the sell-off in correlation among stocks was so substantial that it materially lowered the volatility at the index level. And that was very much a function of interest rates. So you had Reflation minded sectors like the xLF did incredibly well, and then you had these defensive sectors, whether it 's the utilities or the real estate sector and the low vol theme all those things suffered net net it was good for the market uh, the, the reflation, inflationary view, but the sell-off and correlation was a big part of what uh, What reduce volatility at the S&P level.
0: Evan, uh, who is with us right now, Evan Lorenz uh, has done uh, a lot of really good work on China for grants. And I noticed that you uh, put China um, right at the top of the list of uh, clear and present risks to the market. Uh, uh, Tell Evan and me how uh, one would hedge a China risk and how costly that might be.
1: Yeah, so the first thing I would say is um, I just try to live in, in in the history of risk events and try to evaluate the mosaic of risks as they exist now and think about what's the same and what's different. And the risk environment always changing. Um, Pockets of leverage are in different asset classes. They're in different geographies. The stance of central banking is different. The regulatory regime changes, uh, but certainly for, for for me and our team at Macro Risk Advisors, the um, the violent reaction in August 2015 in the S and P uh, was a, uh, a a lesson in the when
0: China it seemed to devalue. Or, yes. Or, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so you had a VIX of 13 on Wednesday before the Monday. I think it was August 24th was the Monday. The VIX took a while to open on that Monday, but it finally opened at 52. And uh, I don't think you've ever had a move that violent outside of perhaps a, a terrorist attack of the magnitude of, of 9-11. Vol doesn't go up like that. and so And then the VIX settled at 40 that day. And those were um, that was one of the biggest explosions of realized volatility in the markets I've ever seen um, you know perhaps outside of the crisis itself. Um, so it tells you something about the fragility of this relationship. Um, some might argue that the PBOC has gotten more experienced at explaining these things and 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 there's a degree of comfort. Um, but what we try to engage our clients in is evaluating scenarios and China being one of them where we think we can hedge off a risk that might, spill back into the U.S. And so uh, on the currency, the CNH, um, and I don't have the option prices handy, but I can give you uh, some volatility readings. Um, Even as early or as late as December, so this is, again, post the Trump win, the VIX was actually quite low, um, implied volatility on the CNH, the currency, for one-year options was north of eight. Uh, It's now 4.3. So this has come down dramatically. And again, volatility feeds directly into cost. And so as we uh, ask clients to spend money, but try to do it judiciously and target it towards those things that we think are fragile at the right cost, that's definitely a focus for us.
2: I'm curious that the CNH actually has such low volatility. In the last five days, we've seen uh, Noble Group's uh, bonds blow up from trading, I think, in 98, just under par, to 70 today. Uh, we've seen iron ore sell off by, like, what, 30%? I mean, it seems like a lot of the China derivative plays have already begun to, like, melt down some. So is the risk to hedge China really that cheap in the face of all of this? It
1: It's certainly, again, nominally it is cheap. Um, and that's a reflection uh, that that's driven by this decline in in implied volatility. Uh, I would say that the folks that would take the other side and say, well, China's, yeah, we, we know the... Uh, typical experience of uh, what, what by all counts is very excessive credit growth over a number of years. We know how this typically ends. We also know that the PBOC um, and its ability to sort of steer things um, is quite substantial. Um, they're not fighting the outflows. I think the last three months they've had inflows. That was a big part of the narrative of, of risk uh, early last year. Um, and then they have their, uh, their elections coming up and, and the view is that they just will absolutely enforce stability at least until then. Um, and so if you're sort of looking for near term catalysts, this is a, you know, fighting a central bank uh, is a pretty difficult thing to do. And I think that the, again, the, taking the other side of my concern is just to say, yeah, they're, they're just going to force stability for, you know, for a period of time.
0: Uh, Dean Macro Risk Advisors does no proprietary trading, so you're uh, honest brokers. But tell me, if you were constructing a portfolio of hedges, if you wanted to uh, do a little Nassim Taleb and invest in seemingly impossible but actually only improbable events, how would you do that? What 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 would be highest on your shopping list in the in the dollar
1: option store not now? So cheap. Yeah. So I think uh, one of the ways in which uh, the risk philosophy of MRA and that of uh, grants, I think, really uh, connect is just in this notion of, uh, as you so well put it, the, um, the 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 price discovery mechanism being so impaired. And we just don't know what the right prices really look like anymore. And I think the center of that is interest rates. Um, and, uh, you know, there was just, a, uh, I think, a statement or an article by Schiller, who I have a lot of respect for, and he said that in a crisis, um, you can always own a 30-year treasury. That's gonna be something that rallies um substantially in a in a risk-off, right? We know that this risk-on, risk-off regime exists. And I think that the consistency with which stock prices and bond prices have been negatively correlated um, has been a magical diversifier. It's been a too good to be true diversifier um the TLT has in some ways been an option A TLT meaning uh sorry yes that's the that's the ETF uh focused on the to roughly a 20 year treasury bond but it's a, a tradable thing um it it's a duration to own the TLT is to be long duration mm-hmm. it's uh it's negative 55% daily correlated to the S&P even as both of these assets have Realized on on balance of something on the order of a ten percent annualized return, maybe thirteen for the S and P and ten for the TLT since two thousand ten. So think about a portfolio in which both assets have positive returns and they themselves are very negatively correlated. It's nirvana, and it I can't get away from how much portfolio construction perhaps leans on the expectation that this will uh, go on at infinitum. And um, so my, my, one of the trades that we would really focus on looking at, and I believe the market nicely hands this to you, frankly, um, and it's not a listed option trade. So you have to work with a bank on doing this, but back to the Schiller question, suppose that the causality of the risk off is reversed, right? Typically it's the risk assets sell off people, there's a flight to safety. And so bond prices rise. What if the sponsor of the risk off is the bond itself? And so you have a spike in bond yields and uh, plenty of reasons to, you know, buy that uh, bond yields are going to be low for a long time. I certainly get it. Uh, But suppose you have something where there's a sudden and sharp sell off in bond prices and that itself, just given the linkage between low rates and very high risk asset prices, is very, very disruptive for equity markets and risk. And the the. This trade is a very interesting way of expressing that, which is you're buying a put option on the S&P that's linked to uh, or exists only if bond prices rise. And because of this negative correlation, this is why you ask pennies on the dollar, the negative correlation between stock and bond prices makes that this special type of option, they call it a hybrid option, incredibly, incredibly cheap.
0: Now, how many takers have you had on this
1: idea? Yeah, no, this is a trade that's, well-used in the marketplace. Or people are in yeah. fact... Yeah, there's, there's, there's people that have, have uh, put this trade on. This is the anti-risk
0: parity trade, no?
1: That's right. It's a taper tantrum type repeat uh, trade.
2: Do you think very low volatility can actually cause this trade? And the reason I ask is... The Fed in recent weeks has said we're going to raise rates three times more this year. We're also going to cut our balance sheet, and one of the reasons they cite is the very low realized volatility. Whenever they make these announcements, they say the market's prepared for this; they're ready for it. Look, they don't even freak out when we say we're going to, you know, sell off our 4.4 trillion dollar securities portfolio.
1: Yeah, I, I, you know, the the dance between the markets and the Fed is something that we watch really closely. I sometimes don't really um, feel the Fed has a proper appreciation about. How much risk taking is dictated by them? I don't think that they understand that uh, they, um, you know, by creating too much calm, the, the, the sort of they close the release valve, and then when it finally opens, it can open um, substantially. They, they, I think they spend too much time trying to read through what to whether the market's going to accept it or not. Look, I do think it's good news in some ways that the Fed's finally got a tightening cycle back. It's a modest one and I think we can um say that it should be a little quicker, uh, but and they got more room to go than a R star that some people say is I think just lower than seems logical to me. But they have a real cycle and the market, as you say, Evan, is, is is it's taking it, right? It's it's uh it's I think it's a good thing versus a year ago, there you had the one in December of fifteen, and then it was just no one had any idea what was going on. Now you actually have a sequencing. Um, and the market seems you know, relatively uh, okay with it at this point.
0: But isn't that the problem, or could it be the problem? The market is okay with it? The market's set up as if nothing's going to happen.
1: I, I think that um, it's good that they're doing it, and it may mean that they need to force themselves to, to do more. Um, absent disruption of some kind, what I observe, and I know you guys have written about this as well, is that the flows into... Whether it's passive investing or just risk, um, this is just going to continue. And I think the spring, you know, coils up the longer we we stay in a very low interest rate environment.
0: Dean, you mentioned indexed investing. Is it a bubble?
1: I, you know, I don't know how to characterize that. Uh, I would say that Vanguard getting a billion dollars a week seems like a lot of money. Oh,
0: may I correct one uh, small misspoken? Yes. uh A uh, billion a day.
1: A billion a day. <laughs>
0: Okay, sorry. Jack Bogle, the great Jack Bogle, was a um, uh, speaker at the Grant Spring Conference. This was a spring conference, if you recall, and Eric, you recall, in which there was a, a blizzard. Yeah, that's okay. But uh, Jack Bogle made it to our conference and he got up and he said that um, they are now taking in $1 billion a day. I guess, I guess he accepted Saturday and Sunday. Uh, and he said that, uh, in so many words, it even freaked him out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, Evan, on my suggestion, added up the, um, the kinds of assets and the kinds of investment vehicles in which valuation seems to play no part. And Evan, why don't you uh, recall the, uh, that enumeration, what kind of uh, numbers we're talking about, in which the stewards of the capital could not care less about price or value.
2: Well, we started with central bank portfolios. Be- ah, yes. Because they those buy- Those guys. Yeah. <laughs> so there's the S&B, which buys um, not only bonds, but also oh, US Swiss stocks. National Bank. Swiss National yeah. Bank. There's the ECB, which just buys euro bonds. There's the Bank of Japan, which buys ETFs. It buys bonds. It buys corporate bonds. Baseball cards. Uh, I'm sure that's the next on uh, on uh, on the on the platter. There's the Fed, which buys um, treasuries and uh, mortgage-backed securities. There's ETFs, which today we learned in March just got up to $4 trillion. There's also uh, index mutual funds. Um, but the total number is over $20 trillion. And, and just for context, world GDP is about $75 trillion. And what we had was a partial list. We, we couldn't get data on indexed funds in, in Europe or outside of the US. There's a lot of categories we couldn't find, but even with the few categories we did, we got up to $20 trillion pretty quickly.
1: It's a, it's incredible. And uh, I think that uh, you go back to the um, the tech bubble and uh, the, the triple Q was around, right? The NASDAQ ETF, and it was uh, getting a lot of money and it was buying uh, the NASDAQ at a 70 PE, right? Agnostic to the the, the price of it. Um, I think another one that I would mention is the Barclays Aggregate Index. There is just a tremendous amount indexed to the Barclays at prices that, um, again, respecting a Larry Summers uh, low forever and secular stagnation, there's just nothing uh, favorable about the nominal yields um, on a Barclays aggregate index, and there's trillions of dollars indexed to that. And um, of course there's a tremendous amount that's implicitly indexed as well. And I think just back to this hedging, this concept of hedging, um, it's really difficult for even the manager who claims to be active to potentially fall behind some benchmark, right? And so, the hedge fund who's trying to do a better job of risk managing uh, to spend that money on puts. and Precious. Precious money, difficult to come by money in a low uh, return environment. They risk falling behind and there's existential business risk uh, that they confront a- as a result of it.
0: Speaking of existential business risk, how is business in the risk management trades?
1: There's a tremendous amount for us to, to look at in this kind of environment. And I think the the complexities uh in um helping people first and foremost design smart trades because you've really got to be smart about them now Uh, we we said option prices are low but that doesn't mean you have to you can just go out and buy them you actually have to be pretty clever about how you design them um vol and volume tend to be correlated um so it's not been a a heavy volume uh period um but what we use the light volume periods uh, to do is to really invest in, um, our own appreciation of past risk events, uh, a careful study of what's happening. Uh, you know, there's always differences and, and, uh, and changes in where the leverage lives globally. Um, and, uh, it's trying to find those areas of fragility, uh, and then see where the price might not reflect it.
0: Uh, we at grants, I think I've said, uh, that, um, uh, that sovereign European sovereign debt, priced at a uh, nominal yield of less than zero, must be the uh, most preposterous proposition on offer in the history of finance. That goes back, what, 20 or 30 years? Uh, it goes back thousands of years. How would you go about shorting sovereign European debt? And I say this with respect to those who must own it. It seems, if you're sitting 3,000 miles away from Europe, it seems such an obvious thing. But uh, our friend Keith Ney, uh, was telling us just the other day, Evan and me, that um, uh, you can't be short this stuff. If you're there, you have to work to 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 uh, somehow materialize a positive yield out of like the nothing they give you. Uh, so you can't go off and short this thing because Mario Draghi is still going to buy it. But how do you see Europe and is there an opportunity for a contrary-minded patient and uh, I guess, deep-pocketed investor to invest in what we might say that looks like an historically inevitable poor outcome
1: to this experiment. You know, and I know you've used this term, there are no bad securities, only bad prices. And it's all about the starting point. The starting point of a negative nominal yield is, to me, uh, again, nothing you'd ever encounter in a textbook. Uh, its um, I don't want to use the word preposterous, but it's almost insulting to... Um, to look at you know markets and to think that this is where we are, it obviously speaks to, I think, a combination of, um, and these are starting to lift, but just severe view on potential for deflation and malfunction, and obviously also something where um, it's a cornered market, right? You have the behemoth, whether it's on the BOJ side or the ECB side, just owning stuff in a um, price agnostic way. They don't care, right? So... Um, yes, I do really do think and Europe is a very, very interesting place to take the long view and to say, look, this isn't going to happen tomorrow. Um, these yields are here for a reason. It's a, uh, it's a market that's been roughly cornered, um, but the price of entry is so interesting. So yeah, you can do um, swaption type trades. Uh, these are derivative trades. You're going to do it on an over-the-counter basis with the dealer, uh, but you're effectively buying puts on bond prices. Um, what's interesting about these, and, and the same is true for the BOJ, you're going to see the same sort of trade, um, is that by virtue of the central bank cornering the market, they've also absolutely flattened out volatility. So this is a very low implied volatility trade. So that further, you have two things going on. You have one, the starting point of the yield could be negative, um, and the starting point of the implied volatility is incredibly low. So from a Convexity standpoint, buying a lot of options for a set amount of premium, it's it's pretty interesting. And then for me personally, as I step back and I look at the the clouds lifting a little bit from from uh, the European side, they're printing positive inflation. They printed better GDP than we did last year. It's actually starting to work a little bit. And you just wonder uh, over a long horizon if you can kind of put these trades on and tuck them away. Um, you know, is there an opportunity for a a really convex payout? In your sock drawer, you can put it right there. Something like yeah. that, yeah. <laughs>
0: uh, we have time for one more question and one more answer. And your answer, if you would, please, Dean, yeah. we can confine this to one word. All right? Yeah. Okay, ready? Here's the question. Inflation or deflation?
1: I think the risk is inflation. I think that uh, the, the next crisis or big risk off sort of type event is the one that happened longest ago. <laughs> and people have just forgotten about it
0: yeah well this is uh, dean cornett the the founder and ceo of uh, macro risk advisors and uh and what a pleasure it has been to be in thank your you. company today dean and um, i thank you evan as always and uh, and eric whitehead at the dials thank you too and ladies and gentlemen uh, readers of grants and aspirational readers of Grant. hey come on and subscribe for pete's sake uh anyway until next time
1: thank you